time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, there are now four candidates in the race for Dane County Executive. A bill to revive the expanded federal child tax credit faces an uncertain future. A candidate vying to represent Madison's near west side on the county board tells us he wants to prioritize affordable housing. And in the second half, more insights from a Madison plow driver, uh, some headlines from the 60s, and the most in-depth weather report on the airwaves. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are the headlines for this evening. The newest Marquette Law School poll is out and it finds Wisconsin voters are deadlocked on the choice between President Joe Biden and (laughs) former President Donald Trump this November. Both candidates have 49% support amongst registered voters. Uh, When given more candidate options, including third-party candidates, voters favored Trump by 3% over Biden. In a hypothetical matchup between Nikki Haley and Joe Biden, Haley gets stronger support than Trump, and she wins over the majority of the independent voters. The survey is the first Marquette Law School poll conducted in 2024 and asked 930 registered voters their preferences during the last week of January. The Wisconsin Senate is again considering passing legislative districts as drawn up by Governor Evers. This time they're proposing those maps in full with no changes to them. That comes after the governor last week rejected another map proposal by Republicans. Those were based on a proposal by Evers with modifications from the legislature that would have protected some Republican incumbents while expressing some doubt about whether the maps would materialize unchanged from Republican hands. Evers indicated to the press today he would likely sign the new maps proposal if they were indeed his maps. The deadline for getting new voting districts adopted is March 15th as determined by the state's election commission. The legislature's budget writing committee advanced a proposal today to advance a $2 billion tax cut, reports WizPolitics. The proposal would expand Wisconsin's second tax bracket, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The cut would cost just above $2 billion over the next fiscal year and would cost nearly a billion and a half in subsequent years. The package was introduced about two weeks ago. It's the latest in a series of tax proposals Republican lawmakers have introduced to take advantage of the state's historic budget surplus. These proposals have been rebuffed by Governor Evers. This time, Republicans have advanced specific proposals individually in order to give the governor to, uh, quote, pick and choose. When asked his position on the package advanced today, Evers told reporters he hasn't yet reviewed the proposal. The University of Wisconsin System has launched a new web portal that could make virtual learning easier. The portal could also help the system drive enrollment and increase graduation rates. It's called Wisconsin Online and is intended to give access to 200 programs across the system's campuses, according to Wisconsin State Journal. You can find it online at online.wisconsin.edu. 
The first season of Top Chef, filmed in Wisconsin, is premiering on March 20th. The state's tourism department brought production of the Bravo cooking competition to Wisconsin by way of $1.3 million in incentives. The season was primarily filmed in Madison and Milwaukee, and folks may remember camera crews at the downtown farmer's market this past summer. One of the competitors, Dan Jacobs, is the first Wisconsin-based chef to make it on the show since its premiere in 2006, reports the Capital Times. Jacobs owns two critically acclaimed restaurants in Milwaukee. And those were the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Hopes for reviving the expanded federal child tax credit got a big boost this week when the plan cleared the U.S. House of Representatives. Final adoption is not guaranteed, but experts in reducing poverty say implementation would help Wisconsin's low-income families. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Tax filing season is underway, and Congress is one step closer to helping low-income families get a bigger break on their returns. Policy experts say a new expansion of the child tax credit would address poverty in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Late this week, the U.S. House passed a bipartisan tax bill that includes a three-year expansion of the child tax credit. Analysts say it isn't as robust as the one-year expansion from 2021, but a key provision would allow families with little or no income to gain eligibility. Tim Smeeting, a retired economist with the University of Wisconsin, says it could allow struggling households to address a big expense they haven't been able to cover. You can pay heating bills that you've let go because you know that the utility won't shut you off until you get the tax refund. He says eliminating those debts frees up money for families to spend on children's needs. Unlike the previous expansion, there would not be monthly payments. It would only apply to a family's income tax refund. The compromise measure also includes business tax breaks. Despite bipartisan support in the House, the bill faces an uncertain future in the Senate with pushback from both Republicans and Democrats. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimates that in the first year, expanding the child tax credit would lift as many as 400,000 kids above the poverty line. The Center's Chris Cox says while there are calls to bring back the original expansion, this bill would still make a difference. Half of kids who don't get the full credit now, their families will gain $600 or more from the bill. And about 40% of kids who don't get the full credit now, their families will gain $1,000 or more from this bill. Bill sponsors hope to get final approval so qualifying households could claim the credit on this year's taxes. Cox says if you file earlier, the measure instructs the IRS to make good on your return. Wisconsin has an earned income tax credit, but the state is often cited as having a regressive tax structure that hurts low-income households. Experts say the federal plan would ease that burden. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. The 2024 spring election season is ramping up. In terms of local elections, the big races on the ballot are for the Dane County Board of Supervisors. Only two Dane County board seats have more than two candidates. That means that they are first headed to the spring primary in two weeks on February 20th. This week, we're taking a look at District 13, where three candidates are vying to represent Madison's near west side. The top two finishers from the primary will move on to the spring election on April 2nd. Yesterday, we heard from Travis Austin, a 22-year-old UW-Madison alum, and today we'll hear from Ronan Rataj, 
Rataj's conversation with WORT news producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Ronan. Yeah, thank you so much. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your background and what inspired you to run for the Dane County Board? Sure. So I have spent my whole life living in Madison. I grew up here. And one of the things I did over the last two years was be a youth representative for the Dane County Board's Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. And so I've had two years of experience with the county board. And when I moved on campus, I felt like I really hadn't heard from my county board representative at all. No one on campus had heard of the Dane County Board, heard of their representative, and I kind of was inspired to run because I think that students should be more engaged with the county board, but especially the county board representative should be more engaged with students, go to more student organization meetings, just be more active in the community. And so you mentioned a youth program with the PP&J. What sort of skills did you learn from that experience? What was so great about that program was that as a youth representative, you're allowed to do everything that a elected representative can do except for your vote is an advisory vote and it doesn't have bearing on the decision process. What it means is that you know I could ask questions of people that we were hearing from about certain issues. I could participate in debates about certain really major plans. One thing that I did was help lead a research project about the causes of youth crime and youth homelessness and what the most effective ideas are for those problems. So really over two years, I learned a lot about the process of how the Dane County Board works, but also you know how to have healthy debate with people that you disagree with on certain issues and how to compromise to really make the best solution. So you mentioned having a better connection to the young people in Dane County. What are some of your other priorities for District 13 and what changes would you like to see there? I think the biggest issue that a lot of students, workers, people who just recently graduated are going through, really everyone in District 13, is the housing market and how insane that is. Every year UW-Madison is taking on more and more students. Uh, Madison, especially District 13, is growing every year. And yet it seems like the new housing development projects are all luxury-based housing. Some of them have private hot tubs in the rooms. They can, you know, cost $2,000 per month just for to rent out a single bedroom, which is really out of the price range and out of many of the students who are going here and many of the workers who just got a job downtown. So my priority would be helping incentivize land developers to create more affordable apartment building plans. So, you know, less private hot tubs in the rooms and more just safe bedrooms that people can live at that are close to classes, close to their jobs, and won't break the bank. And so in terms of the county as a whole, are there any wider goals that you would like to touch on? As a county, I think that we can still be doing more for the environment. I think protecting our lakes is really important. But something that came up a lot when I was on public protection judiciary committee that I think we need to fix is the way we do criminal justice. I think that too much of our resources are being put into less effective ways of preventing crime. As I mentioned before, I led a research project and what it showed was that the most effective way to prevent crime and to try to reduce the racial disparities in the criminal justice system is to have more funding for after-school programs. 
So I would want the county to fund more after-school programs, especially transportation to and from existing after-school programs, because that's a barrier that a lot of people have for after-school programs that cause them not be able to participate in it. But after-school programs are the most effective way, studies have shown, at preventing youth crime. So while this election for the Dane County Supervisors is going on, the Dane County Executive, Joe Parisi, he's approaching his retirement, which was scheduled for this spring. Uh, What are your thoughts on that race? And if elected to the county board, how do you plan to handle that transition? There is a race right now to replace County Executive Parisi. I have not endorsed any of the candidates that are currently running for it. I'm trying to get as many students as I can to register to vote and to vote in county elections. That's something that I really think is important because I think it's a group that don't vote enough in important elections like this. But again, I think the most important thing is that we have a high voter turnout that allows the new elected county executive to be successful. And I think that whoever is elected, I will try to work with them to create the best solutions for the different problems for the county. All right, I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? One thing I'll just say is to pay attention to your local elections, make sure to learn what you need to do to register to vote and to really participate in your local government. It's so important to stay civically engaged. Thank you to all your listeners for taking the time to listen to what I have to say. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Ronan. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Ronan Rataj, one of three candidates vying for the District 13 seat on the Dane County Board. District 13 represents part of UW-Madison's campus and the city's near west side. Tune in tomorrow to hear from the district's incumbent, Supervisor Jay Brower. And on to other matters at the county level, two more candidates have joined the race for Dane County Executive. County Supervisor Dana Pelabon announced her campaign this morning and Wes Sparkman entered the race last Thursday. Our producer, Faye Parks, has an update. There are now four candidates in the race for Dane County Executive this November. Over the last week, two more candidates have thrown their hats in the ring. This morning at the Concourse Hotel, County Board Supervisor Dana Pelabon announced that she is joining the race. Several local officials attended to show their support, including Madison Alder, Sabrina Madison, and County Supervisor Yogesh Chavla. Pelabon says her experience in housing and human services, criminal legal reform, victims' rights, and the arts would be an asset. I'm running for county executive because I believe that Dane County deserves a leader who has worked with and in our community at all levels for over 30 years. She says she has a plan to address the county's housing crisis. We must invest in housing opportunities while ensuring the wraparound services needed for those most vulnerable. Pelabon is executive director of the Sexual Violence Resource Center, formerly called the Rape Crisis Center. She's active in the local theater community, including co-founding the Loud and Unchained Black Theater Festival. This morning, she highlighted her resume in local government. That includes leadership on a Dane County subcommittee working to guide policies on community justice, and her work with community leaders like local nonprofit Urban Triage. Pelabon is one of two candidates who have announced their campaigns in the last week. Last Thursday, Wes Sparkman announced his run for county executive. He's director of Dane County's Office for Equity and Inclusion, 
Sparkman also serves as chairman of SSM Health Wisconsin's Board of Directors and as vice chair of the Board of Visitors for the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Sociology. He says these roles demonstrate his experience as a public servant and as a leader. It's been a benefit for me, and I think an area where I stand out is the ability to have been chosen to lead leaders. Sparkman says several of the county's ongoing issues ultimately relate to economic development. Some of his priorities, he says, are to strengthen the county's Department of Human Services and to make affordable housing available to more residents. And he says that he wants the child care crisis to get more attention on the county level. Me being married with children and and now my youngest being 14 years old, uh, affordable child care and child care issues are huge in Dane County. Sparkman and Pelabon bring the candidate tally for Dane County Executive up to four. For now, Madison Alder Regina Vitiver and State Senator Melissa Agard announced their respective campaigns last fall. Meanwhile, Robert Harlow, a Democratic candidate in the 2018 gubernatorial race, filed a campaign finance registration statement for County Executive. But he told the Capital Times he is no longer planning to run. Outgoing County Executive Joe Parisi is resigning this May, a year before his term ends. The position will be filled by the new county board after this April's election. The race for Dane County Executive will appear on the ballot in November during the presidential election. The winner will serve out the remainder of the term until next April, when the race will again be on the ballot. But Parisi is wasting no time in signaling who he wants to win, endorsing Melissa Agard at an event late last month. When asked today how it felt to declare after the outgoing executive had already signaled his support, Pelabon told WORT. So I think that there are a lot of, a lot of people in a lot of spaces that have put their names behind someone um, or several different people um, that I think was premature. You know, we can't even collect signatures until April. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Whether it's the cost of land or having no family connections, new and emerging farmers face big obstacles in securing property to grow their products. Outreach specialists in Wisconsin say if renting land is a likelihood, there are key things to remember. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Farmers who produce the food we eat don't always own the land that food is grown on, including Wisconsin. Those trying to get their operations off the ground are being given tools to ensure more certainty about where they can do the work. More than a third of Wisconsin farmland is leased, that according to federal data. Kelly Wolfert is a farm management outreach specialist with the University of Wisconsin Extension. She suggests renting land is the only real option for new and emerging farmers. That's because current market conditions put owning property out of reach, and these individuals also have to invest in things such as new equipment, creating even bigger disadvantages. Land is very expensive when you're competing against farmers who have assets already built up that they can leverage in order to afford that land. Her team is trying to educate smaller operations about the dynamics of leasing agricultural property and what their rights are. With ownership changing hands as more family farms disappear, Wilford says it's important to make sure you have your lease in writing with clear terms. She adds that being more vocal about conservation practices you might deploy could help get a break on the cost of the rent. 
Steve Akinek, a regional educator with UW Extension, says lacking social connections in a farming community you're eyeing for production is another barrier. Especially if you're a new person coming into a neighborhood, it can be very difficult. It comes down to networking. He says you should treat your quest for land almost like a job search, where establishing trust and familiarity might result in more leads. This outreach comes as the nation sees an influx of beginner farmers trying to get a bigger share of the market. In the most recent census of agriculture, there was a 17% increase in the number of farmers with less than five years of experience. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. When you work for Madison's Streets Division, you wear many hats to keep our community clean and safe. On this week's Madison's Backbone, feature contributor Riley Cutright has more of her conversation with Jameson. He shares some tips on getting hired, what being on call in the winter entails, and what it's like working in the elements every day. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. Last week, we left off with a conversation about Madison's salt usage with Jameson, a professional snowplow driver. We're going to pick up right where we left off with another question. Do you think that other people in your profession, including you, get enough recognition? I don't know. I don't know that anyone is particularly looking for recognition. I mean, once a year, and it's funny because I believe it's, I might be wrong, but I believe it's usually the beginning of December is like National uh, Snowplow Driver Appreciation Day. Oh. And I always see the posts on social media, you know, thank a snowplow driver, blah, blah. And I I feel like it's early December because it's always before the winter even hits. And I'm like, well, I haven't done anything yet. Um, I, I don't know if anyone's really looking for any sort of recognition. I feel like with most jobs, we get the most recognition when something goes wrong. Mm, <laughs> yeah. That's when people really have something to say to us. We face that this winter, and we face it a lot of winters, is if someone's unhappy with their street, they feel like we're not taking care of their street, or we purposely plowed their driveway in which never is a thing but you know people get upset with this then i feel for me in particular and i think for a lot of the a lot of the people that i work with the recognition you want is just that you yourself did a good job no one's following me around being like oh you did a great job on that <laughs> corner there oh that cul-de-sac <laughs> looks great you know mm-hmm. but i know and i take pride in it and when the city doesn't look great it, it's frustrating a lot of our job within the streets department and at least for me especially is don't really deal with a, a, a boss regularly. Like mm-hmm. as a street sweeper, I come in in the morning before any of the bosses come in. I kind of go out, I do my thing, I come in, I don't really deal with anyone. And so it kind of becomes self-reliant. And if I'm waiting for someone to pat me on the back for 
what a good job I did. I could be waiting a while. <laughs> Would you say that this job is good for people who don't like interacting with the general public? It's not bad. I mean, we do have to interact with them from time to time. And it does help to have a people personality. At least not, even if you're not outgoing, but at least not abrasive. Because <laughs> you do have to deal with the public from time to time. But it is much less so than if you're working, you know, customer service somewhere or what have you, you know. There's a lot of days where I'm very happy that I'm just in my truck and just listening to podcasts and rolling through the city. Yeah. <laughs> the big, I mean, I guess the most interaction you have is, you know, we have, ah, man, 80 some operators on each side of town and you have all kinds of personalities, right? I mean, you just, you, you get all types. Balancing personalities amongst ourselves sometimes can be more difficult than anything. And I'm in a position now where I really don't work with anyone anymore. I work mm-hmm. solo almost 100% of the time, which I kind of prefer. <laughs> How does your job impact your daily life, either negatively or positively? Being on call in the winter, the call in the middle of the night, and half the time I don't hear my phone, and then they'll call my wife's phone, <laughs> and she'll be like, work's calling, and I, I have to go. I got to go in. It's 3.30 in the morning. They need me to go in. You know, unfortunately... When I first started there, I was trying to be 100% of my overtime opportunities. Mm-hmm. I missed a lot of things with my kids because I got to go to work. I can't make it to the game, you know, mm-hmm. and that was tough. But it also, you know, like I said, the, the the overtime opportunities provide a lot for my family in the winter. It's great. Like any job, there's there's positives and negatives. I have two boys who are grown and a, and a daughter who's in grade school. All of them growing up just loved the fact that I drove big trucks. I would have Fridays off and I'd go, let's go, let's go to work and you can check out all the big trucks that I drive. And they thought that was just amazing because every little kid loves big trucks. When you're a garbage man, you, at least when I was, this has been a while, um, we used to run the same route. You'd run for two months and then you'd rotate. And I did it for seven years. So I, it's, you get to know every single street in Madison. But you also start to re- learn what houses have the little kids that are freaking out the windows. Mm-hmm. And I would look forward to, I mean, I can still picture specific houses that the little kids would be in the window or they'd come running out in the summer, freaking out because the garbage van's coming, you know? Yeah. And I loved it. It's it, I love it. I love any time I can chat with those kids. Even now, the, the street sweeper in the summer, kids love the street mm-hmm. sweeper. And one of the areas I, I sweep every day is around the zoo. And I'll take my time and show them how this cool machine works, and they love it. How much do you think your work impacts Madison as a whole? Is often recognized, along with police and fire, as emergency services. Because we are, especially when it comes to snow plowing, we are clearing the road. The ambulance can't get down the road if we haven't cleared it a right. lot of times, right? And that's kind of our issue, and a lot of our issues with when we come, in, come to streets that we can't get through, and we have to call parking enforcement, like... If I can't get through, then the fire truck can't get through. It's like, we need to get this taken care of, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it has an impact. Positive and negatively, sometimes you can have an impact. You go to some other communities, you go to smaller communities that maybe don't have the level of service that we in Madison can provide. And you'll see that sometimes it can be days after a storm before they even start clearing it and or don't clear properly. The fact that we do provide such intense services and you know a lot one of the things people don't realize is the same guy who plows your snow is the same guy who's picking your trash the Mm -hmm. next day um the same guy who is plowing your snow is the same guy in the summer that's out there picking up all your brush piles or sweeping your street it's a lot of services provided Mm -hmm. for one one facility you know 
So be nicer to the people. <laughs> well, that's kind of the, yes, that's the warning that we give people too. Like when you're working during the day and people are blowing their snow out into the street and you go, you know, I'm going to be the guy that's coming by with a snowplow later tonight. Like, yeah. don't blow your stuff into the street. Like, it's it's not some different guy that's coming through here again. It's going to be me in a different truck. We work long hours and we're patient. <laughs> so you said that you have to take classes mm-hmm. sometimes. And so is this provided to you or do you have to like pay for this separately outside of your job or no so we have we have mandatory training every year we have to have a certain amount of hours so we have various things we do we this past year we had to take a a vision zero course about safe driving that was provided to us we take the salt wise class that's provided to us a lot of it is safety dependent because we work around a lot of big dangerous equipment so do these trainings kind of go into this like class one class two class three machine operator not really i mean because so the the classes really are mostly for the eight nine months out of the year that isn't winter in the winter snow plowing is snow plowing now there's different equipment so like i can get into a big front end loader or a big road grader for the most part a plow truck is a plow truck do you have any tips on getting hired to get into with the with the city, I mean, you just go, we have postings all the time. We go to citymadison.com slash jobs. Our job postings are up there all the time. We are CDL operators, so you have to have commercial driver's license. You don't have to have it getting in. We will get you your license. All you have to do is have a license, mm-hmm. regular license. And we are posting jobs all the time. The biggest thing is, is the being outside. Like, that kind of separates people who... We tell them, they're told in the interviews, like, this is an outside job. You're going to be in the elements. I hope that's okay. And a lot of people just say, yeah, 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 I just need the job, right? Mm -hmm. And then the first day you're out there in the freezing, pouring rain, like, well, this kind of sucks. Like, well, yeah, this is the job. But to get in, it's really applying there. And we, uh, we have a lot of openings. And the city is only growing. If you could give one tip or trick to a new hire, what would it be? The one thing I always tell new hires when I'm training or anything is... Ask questions. Don't feel, don't be intimidated. Don't be too cocky like you know everything. Like I said, it took me years and years to learn, to feel comfortable that I knew enough to tell anyone else what to do. Listen, ask questions of people. There's no dumb questions. Take it slow, take it easy. Make small mistakes instead of big mistakes, Mm -hmm. you know? But the biggest thing is just asking questions. Getting on the radio, if you don't know what you're doing, be humble enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing. And we have all these guys here that will help you. Well, I'm Riley Cartwright, and this is Madison's Backbone. I'm here with Jameson. And if no one has thanked you today, thank Thank you. you. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we've certainly been no stranger to warm weather this year so far. Indeed, of the past 15 days, only one this past Monday has been less than double digits above normal. Uh, Indeed, a good number of the past two weeks have been 15 to 19 degrees above normal. As warm as we've been, though, we haven't yet set any records, uh, but we should have a fairly good crack at that tomorrow. One reason that we haven't reached record territory so far has been our uh, relatively quiescent position under uh, one form of upper ridging or another the past few weeks. That's meant that strong temperature contrasts and strong jet stream winds have remained far away from us either to the north or south. 
keeping storm development at bay as well. Without significant storms coming through, we've lacked the sort of strong winds that are necessary during the cold season, especially to mix the warm air, which often during winter remains stuck a few thousand feet above the cold land surface down here to ground level. Uh, that mixing down also additionally warms the air. Uh, but as uh, currently, as the upper ridging over the center of the continent finally begins to shift eastward and upper troughing moves in behind it, we've managed to get a fairly energetic storm to spin up on the plains to our west, and that's begun to ratchet up the southerly winds already through here, as you might have noticed today. Wind speeds are only going to increase uh, from here forward as we go through the night and into tomorrow. Uh, have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, and you'll uh, you'll uh, see the same southwesterly jet that's lately been pounding the west coast with rain, now slicing northeastward from the Mexican plateau up across the central plains and throwing mid and upper level moisture from the Pacific up across our skies today in the form of uh, increasingly thick altacumulus and altastratus. The three-day infrared and visible image that's on the weather webpage also provides a similar view, but it shows very nicely the low clouds and fog that have also been streaming off the Great Lakes over us at turns these past few days. A 992 millibar surface circulation that's currently deepening with this approaching system over about northeastern Colorado will track from there northeastward across the Dakotas and northern Minnesota tomorrow, swinging a cold front towards us as we go through the day. There continue to be indications that sufficient moisture and heat may be drawn northward tomorrow ahead of that incoming cold front as the low-level circulation briefly hooks into some Gulf of Mexico moisture. That passing showers may be able to attain enough vertical build for thunderstorms. Dew points do look to surge briefly into at least the mid and perhaps the upper 40s in the late afternoon and will be positioned well with regard to a passing jet maximum to our south over Illinois in the late day period to receive additional synoptic lift. So some cracks of thunder are certainly possible with what will be fast moving cells tomorrow. What's more, strong speed shear in the lowest 3,000 feet or so of the air column and some veering directional shear as we approach evening uh, has moved the Storm Prediction Center to issue a marginal risk for severe weather, although they uh, do note that upward directed energy will be at best modest tomorrow. The low-level wind fields would be uh, fairly conducive to tornado spin-ups should any near-ground instability be realized, or at least fairly decent instability, so it'd be worth taking note tomorrow if you see the skies clearing and we start to warm, especially in the late afternoon period. It appears that there's uh, a narrow window between mostly about 4 and 6 p.m. in which conditions favorable for strong storms would actually come together here. Uh, otherwise, we'll cool modestly then behind a veering wind shift tomorrow night with clouds hanging in through Friday as we cool, and probably Saturday also as a storm passes to our southeast and throws another round of high clouds up over us. Uh, otherwise, not much else to note as we go out into next week. But for the details, uh, tonight passing high and mid-level clouds will continue through the nighttime hours with temperatures holding in the low 40s for low temperatures on southerly winds at uh, 10 to 14 miles per hour. Tomorrow, skies should continue to see passing mid-level clouds with lower clouds moving in sometime in the late morning hours as uh, moisture starts to deepen. And a round of fast-moving showers and, again, perhaps thunderstorms sweeps northeastward across the area, uh, perhaps in scattered fashion midday. We'll continue to warm then and moisten in the afternoon behind that 
initial warm frontal line on what will be strengthening southwesterly winds coming up to 15 to 22 miles per hour. And with temperatures reaching the low or perhaps even the mid-50s in the late afternoon, with dew points hitting the mid-40s, so it'll begin to feel kind of damp, uh, if we clear it all, you might take note about the severe possibilities. Otherwise, we may just see another round of uh, more average showers and perhaps some thunderstorms crossing the area towards evening. Temperatures will drop back into the upper 30s overnight with uh, south, south, southwest and west winds up at 12 to 18 miles per hour. Friday, we may see some clearing, but I think we're going to see some redevelopment of either cumulus or stratocumulus later in the day as the lower part of the air column cools. Temperatures will reach the uh, mid and perhaps the upper 40s on westerly winds at 12 to 18 miles per hour. Uh, winds will come down some in the overnight to 5 to 10 miles per hour, and we may see some clearing with temperatures dropping to around 30. And Saturday will see a fair bit of high cloudiness, as I mentioned, especially south and east of Madison with somewhat clearer skies to the north and west. Temperatures will reach the mid or upper 30s on west and northwest winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour. We'll drop into the mid-20s overnight and return to the lower mid-30s Sunday as skies clear a bit more from west to east. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 42 degrees. The dew point temperature is 34. Uh, we're overcast up at about 16,000 feet. Winds are out of the south at 9 miles per hour, and the barometer is at 29.97 inches of mercury and falling slowly. We go now to the first week of February 1969 for the Black Revolution Symposium and the start of the most successful political protest of the decade. Stu Levitan breaks it down on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, February 1969, the Black Revolution Symposium. From February 3rd to the 8th, 21 nationally renowned guests, including the Reverends Jesse Jackson and Andrew Young, and 43 faculty, staff, and students, lead a conference at the UW entitled The Black Revolution, To What Ends? Produced by Union Forum Committee co-chairs Marjorie Tabankin and Neil Weisfeld for $8,861, the six-day symposium attracts 16,500 attendees, and it crystallizes the incipient black power movement on campus. Chancellor Edwin Young unwittingly helps underwrite the conference through a $2,500 contribution his office had made to the Afro-American Race Relations Center, which turned it over to the conference. The Reverend Albert B. Cleage, Jr., pastor of Detroit's Shrine of the Black Madonna, formerly Central United Church of Christ, proposes a separate black church, quote, to direct the white distortions of Christianity, describing Jesus as a black revolutionary and the Apostle Paul as, quote, kind of an Uncle Tom Jew, Cleage tells an enthusiastic Great Hall crowd that, quote, the total relationship between whites and blacks is so tainted by the idea of white supremacy that nothing whites can do is right. The white man is essentially an enemy. 
he is part of the system of oppression. Local civil rights activists also participate, including city council candidate Eugene Parks, associate editor of the black-oriented Madison Sun newspaper. At an integrated panel on, quote, racism in Madison, Parks denounces the university for not divesting itself of stock it holds in the Chase Manhattan Bank, which makes loans in apartheid South Africa. Chase Manhattan is making money off the backs of blacks in Africa, Parks says. If the university were really concerned about my welfare, it would repudiate such connections. Madison Sun publisher Lawrence Sanders adds that Madison itself is, quote, hiding behind a cloak of liberalism. On the 5th, sociology professor Nathan Hare, acting chairman of the embryonic and groundbreaking Department of Black Studies at San Francisco State University, tells a standing room only crowd in Great Hall that, quote, the white university establishment is destroying black society and culture, and that, quote, we may have to cut off the ears of a few college deans to expose the way they act as puppets of the educational system. And he explains why he excludes whites from a course he teaches at Black Consciousness at San Francisco State. Quote, To teach a white black consciousness is sort of like teaching a dog cattedness. At a panel that night, he tells students they must, quote, do whatever needs to be done to get the university to meet your demands. Active in the bitter three-month-old black student strike that led to his department's creation, Hare meets later with UW student Willie Edwards of the Black People's Alliance and other black student leaders and puts their activism into context with the hard-line crackdown that new SF State President Esai Hayakawa has begun. We are on the front lines at SF State and getting our asses kicked, he tells them. You are on a radical campus and have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters to take action. Edwards and the others embrace Hare's challenge and start planning a Wisconsin black strike led by the black students' inner council called the Wapindusi Wayusi, Swahili, more or less, for black revolutionary. A bit before noon on Friday, February 7th, about 10 black students, led by Edwards, presents a list of 13 demands, including, quote, an autonomous black studies department controlled and organized by black students and faculty, with a black chairman approved by black students and faculty, that black students have veto power in hiring and firing all administrators and teachers involved in anything related to the black studies department, at least 500 additional black students be admitted to the university by fall, black student control over the Blacks Cultural Center, amnesty for all black students who participated in the recent strike at UW Oshkosh, and admission for all those recently expelled there. That afternoon, as Reverend Young, Executive Director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, prepares to speak on the conference on Where Do We Go From Here?, about 300 students sweep up Bascom Hill from the noon rally to disrupt classes in seven university buildings. Members of the group, about three-quarters of whom are white, briefly take over numerous classrooms to read and explain their demands. Some professors and students are intimidated, but there are no arrests or serious incidents. Swelling to about 500, banging trash cans and chanting, On strike! Shut it down! The group marches down to Library Mall for a rally where black leaders again explain the demands. Then it's back up the hill for another round of classroom disruptions, 
including of Professor Harvey Goldberg's History 474 lecture, followed by a mass meeting of about a thousand in the Union Theater, where a black speaker calls for, quote, complete disruption, and if that doesn't work, complete destruction of the university. Speaking to an overflow crowd of about 1,300 in the Great Hall that evening, Reverend Jackson says the 13 demands, quote, should be followed to the letter until I see white America go through the psychological exercise of freeing herself of superior delusions, she can't relate to me. And that is why there is a black revolt here tonight and why wise white people and black people will support it. Adding that for black students, the whole university should be a rebellion. Jackson's talk is entitled, The Necessity of Being Militant. Director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's Operation Breadbasket, Jackson says racism is, quote, deep in the bone marrow of America, and he puts the civil rights struggle in an economics context. Lincoln did not free us. He released us into a more cruel world, he tells the enthusiastic crowd. He put us into capitalism without a capital base, like putting fish in a bowl without water. And organizers don't ignore cultural and historic aspects. The Memorial Union's main gallery hosts a collection of paintings, sculptures, and prints by a dozen black artists. And across Langdon Street, there's a black history exhibition at the State Historical Society, featuring African artifacts, photographs of the slave trade, and a narrative of the black experience in Wisconsin. Sparked by the symposium, the black strike continues and grows. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, conference-cataloging WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. This is a mostly volunteer-produced newscast, and you'll notice when I read the credits in a moment, we have no reporter to thank this evening. So if you'd like to report for us, we'd love to have you. We provide all the training, so it's a really good deal and a fun place to volunteer. Contact the station during business hours if you're interested. We do want to... Thank and welcome Greg Sanderson, who is our new headline writer as of this evening. Special thanks to feature contributors Jose Carlos Taxiera, Riley Cutright, and Stu Levitan. Katie Gergella is our on-air engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.